Storm Cunningham is the executive director of the Reconomics Institute. They teach public and private clients around the globe how to be more sustainable. He has written three books about crisis recovery, economic growth, and community resilience. This episode, you'll learn how to live more sustainably, as well as how Storm exited his nine to five to become an author, speaker, and consultant. From one standpoint, I wrote it as an exit strategy to get out of the nine to five world, figuring that uh, if I had a a book as a platform, I could uh, repurpose my uh, life as a speaker and a consultant, and uh, the book would give me the uh, you know the confidence and the credibility I needed to do so. On the other hand, you could say I wrote it uh, because I love snakes. And I love scuba diving. And, uh, you know, my, I've been a nature lover ever since I was a little kid, and uh, especially herpetology, you know, reptiles and amphibians. I always pictured myself doing something for a living that was helping nature in some way. So the restoration economy came about because I had witnessed people all over the world restoring nature, not just sustaining it, not just conserving it, but actually undoing the damage we had done to it, bringing dead places back to life. And I thought those stories needed to be told. The restoration economy is kind of, is it kind of story-based about things you've experienced? Or is it more like a, a guide manual to how you can restore the earth? Yeah, it was kind of a blend. Uh, it was very conceptual, theoretical in terms of the impact this could have on the future of the planet and on how it changes our economies. But it was also very story oriented in that I had to give examples of people who are actually doing this for a living, who are restoring the world for a living or revitalizing communities for a living in order for people to believe it was actually possible. Yeah. So give us an example of that or you doing that in the world the experience that really got me started down this path you know i mentioned i've been into scuba diving which i was actually taught when i was in the military and kept it uh, kept at it after the military and in the late 80s there was a german scientist who was working in jamaica on a technology he was inventing to restore dead coral reefs Right. And he needed some volunteers to come down and help him out, you know, installing these experiments on the ocean floor. So I went down there for a week and witnessed his other experiments where literally dead zones had come back to life. They were just overflowing with fish and card corals and soft corals and sponges and anemones. And mm. it was just it was the closest thing to doing magic for a living that I'd ever seen or even heard of. Uh, you know, I mean, it, the idea of restoring a coral reef sounded ridiculous. I mean, coral reefs take thousands of years to aggregate. Mm. And here's this guy is saying he can bring one back to life in six months. Mm. <laughs> but I, I saw it. It's, I saw it happen. And that's when I suddenly realized that uh, these people were going beyond the old sustainable development paradigm that everybody was talking about, but which didn't seem to be doing a whole lot of good. Uh, you know, there are a lot of good things that are done in the name of sustainable development, yeah. but the sustainable development moniker itself is it, really just a dialogue tool. It's not something that's real. And uh, besides, you know, you look around at the mess the world is in today. Who wants to sustain this mess? Yeah. yeah we need to undo the damage. Yeah. So things like for you, recycling and repurposing things, you're like, do away with that. Let's not even make plastic anymore. Let's not even, you know abuse the earth like this let's just put things back into its natural state i'm all for recycling i mean we need to do all of these things that reduce waste reduce toxicity those are all good things all i'm saying is that we can't have a, a brighter healthier wealthier future simply by slowing down the rate at which we damage the planet right we've got to reverse course. We've got to re restore the existing damage and revitalize the places we've already developed. And that's not going to happen just by destroying at a slower rate. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we, yeah, by all means, cut the rate of pollution in half, cut the rate of waste in half. But if you really want a brighter future, remove the pollution that's already out there, remove the waste that's already out there. And you mentioned repurposing. That's actually a, a very good thing because the way we regenerate the planet mm. and revitalize cities 
is by doing three key things to our natural and our built and our socioeconomic assets. Mm. One, we have to repurpose them. Find all those decrepit, outdated, badly designed places and things like infrastructure and buildings and find a valuable new purpose for them. Once you do that, you can raise the money you need to renew them. And once you've renewed them to get the maximum value, the revitalization value out of them, you got to reconnect them, either reconnect them to the ecosystems or reconnect them to the communities. You do those three things, repurpose, renew, and reconnect. And that's a formula that is revitalizing places all over the planet right now. I call it the three re strategy. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got this company, the Reconomics Institute. And so these are the things that the Reconomics Institute stand for. And I'm assuming are the three things that you're going to talk about are boost resilience, boost economic growth and boost health. You can look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, you can slice and dice it however you want. You could talk about restoring the natural environment, revitalizing the built environment, you know, revitalizing economies and societies. Um, yeah, and all of those things result in more health. So you can look at it as a uh, as boosting human health, as boosting social harmony, because when people work together to revitalize their communities, uh, they realize that. They can actually do things together, and that leads to relationships that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. That, that's a perfect example of that was Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, back in the early 70s, the city was just going down the tubes. Uh, you know, their air pollution was so bad, you had to drive with your headlights on in the middle of the day. Oh. Uh, they, were, they were losing their employers. Uh, citizens were moving away. They had racial problems and crime problems. I mean, they had every problem every other city had, but they had it much worse, all of them much worse. So the city seemed to be on its deathbed. And they decided, as a result of being insulted on national TV, um, being called America's filthiest city, they decided they were going to clean the place up. And they cleaned up their air and won the EPA's first Clean Air Award. And that experience of working together, all of the income classes, all of the ethnicities, uh, they suddenly realized, wow, we really can accomplish things together. And that led them to revitalize their entire city, which I documented in my second book, the McGraw-Hill book, uh, Rewealth. Yeah. And they, they went from America's worst city to a poster child of revitalization just by learning how to work together. Yeah. So working together, kind of bringing the community together. These are kind of the, the, the starting blocks of re-wealth and, you know, re, rejuvenating an area. But what is something that the listener can do right now for themselves that would be kind of in the same ethos that the Reconomics Institute kind of bodies? Well, every community is working on some aspect of revitalization or restoration, regeneration, resilience. Um, the problem is most of them fail. Right. And there's one really common reason for those failures. Now, it, they don't necessarily fail outright, but they fail to make any kind of significant impact mm -hmm. on the community. And the reason for that is they don't actually have a process for achieving resilience or achieving re revitalization. And you look around, everybody who, re who reliably produces anything mm -hmm. knows you have to have a process. Yeah. doesn't matter whether you're producing clothing or peanut butter or cars or, you know, you've got to have a process to do it. Yeah. But the people who put together these revitalization and resilience initiatives don't have a process. They just kind of They'll do a project here and then they'll do a project there. And it's just this stop, start, disconnected uh, series of actions. Yeah. And as a result, they might spend huge amounts of money and huge amounts of time and effort doing these projects and still not achieve the revitalization or resilience they want. So what we do at Re uh, Reconomics Institute is we train and certify people to supply their communities with that missing process. Right. So you can do this as a volunteer. Uh, just, you know, to, you know, uh, upgrade your life, you know, by being able to say, wow, look at that, you know, the community is coming back to life and I helped do that. Uh, or you can do it professionally. Uh, you could do it professionally either as a politician, if you want to get into politics, or you can do it as a consultant, as a business person. You might already have some kind of background that relates 
to improving communities like architecture or planning or engineering or economics or something, or you, you might just have a business background or whatever. It doesn't really matter because all you really need to bring to the table is that process mm. that will help the, ensure success for the community. And you can make a living doing that. Quite a few people do. Yeah, because it's one of those things that's, you know, it's the buzzword right now is, oh, global warming, this, that, and whatever. We need to stop this or we need to reverse it. And a lot of what I've been hearing recently is that scientists are basically saying, we're, we're screwed. Everything's gone too far. We've messed up. And the best thing we can do is stop, stop doing certain things now and start doing certain things yesterday, which means basically now again. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, the great thing about the the process that we teach at Reconomics Institute, which, by the way, is at Reconomics.org, is that it both regenerates communities and nature and provides more resilience. So in regenerating communities and nature, it's cutting down on carbon releases and methane releases and all the things that are killing the planet. Uh, but at the same time, it's boosting resilience so that if we're unsuccessful at slowing down the climate change process, then at least our communities will be more prepared to deal with the storms, the flooding, the fires, the droughts, uh, everything that goes along with the climate crisis. Yeah. So in a view of, you know, reducing your, your waste and being more sustainable, what's your view on growing food and vegetables and plants at home? Is that something you do yourself or is that something you encourage other people to do through like community gardens or something? Yeah, I certainly do it myself. Uh, it's one of the most uh, effective uh, therapies I've got for getting out of business mode and reconnecting with the planet uh, is growing and eating my own food. So, yeah, my wife and I get tremendous pleasure out of our backyard organic garden. But, yeah, the community gardens are tremendously healing from a number, number of aspects. Number one, a lot of places are repurposing vacant lots that would normally just be garbage strewn, weed, weed choked uh, places where, where often uh, crime takes place. And uh, they're repurposing them as community gardens, or sometimes they're repurposing them as wetlands in order to cut down on flooding. And, uh, but also planting them in such a way that they help uh, restore native pollinators and all kinds of local wildlife. And you do that, you're beautifying and revitalizing a neighborhood, you're beautifying and revitalizing nature, and you're working together either to create the garden or to maintain it uh, or harvesting food from it, uh, you know, eating food from it. It brings the whole community together. So you're also helping to heal and revitalize the society. Yeah. So kind of following on from the food aspect of growing your own food and that view on sustainability the meat market comes to mind for me. What is your views on the meat market? Are you like, you know, a strict vegetarian because you don't want to add to that pollution and that process? Or is it something that you feel like meat can be even done in a sustainable manner? Well, yeah, there's very much uh, a uh, very strong regenerative agriculture movement these days. And I actually, I was one of the first people to document it. Uh, I started writing the restoration economy back in 1996. And it didn't come out till 2002. I'm a slow writer, but uh, it had uh, what was maybe the, the first chapter ever devoted to regenerative agriculture in a, in a proper book. Uh, although people have been working on it for decades before that, but it hadn't really been you know, revealed to the, to the world. And since then, it's really picked up speed since people suddenly realized that regenerative agriculture didn't just regenerate the soil, didn't just regenerate uh, the uh, watersheds or local biodiversity, that it actually sequestered carbon and became a, a major part of the uh, climate solution. So that can be done both for farming vegetables, but it can also be done uh, in ranching animals for meat. And my favorite example, and one I actually wrote about uh, in my books, is a place called Wild Idea in South Dakota, which is a bison farm. And the uh, fellow Dan O'Brien, who started it a long time ago, was originally a cattle rancher, and he realized that the cattle were destroying the ecosystem. So he switched to bison. So, and in the process, he built himself a much more uh, sustainable business and um, he uh, restored the prairie ecosystem 
and because the bison are meant to be there. Right. And um, he also helps uh, is helping to restore the bison, which used to be one of the most common animals in North America and was right on the brink of extinction uh, not that long ago. So uh, he wrote a book about it called A Buffalo for the Broken Heart, which is one of the most entertaining books you'll ever read. Uh, highly recommend it. And uh, he actually restored himself. So he had gone through a great personal trauma at the time he started that ranch and it restored him. So he's restoring everything, the local economy, the ecosystems, his own uh, <laughs> mental health. Um, you know, it's just a wonderful story. Yeah. So sustainability, like you've said previously or just earlier, is something that can be done in any regard. Obviously, there are some things that aren't sustainable at all, you know, such as burning fossil fuels and all that kind of stuff. But going on from, you know, food, so kind of on the health aspects so, of, you know, food, you know, vegetarian, meat eater, whatever you want to be. How about the human existence? Because that is the, the second part of sustainability that a lot of people get onto is, oh, humans are, you know, just in general bad for the planet. You know, we, okay, food side, we're doing too much. But then even our day-to-day -day lifestyles, things like electricity, things like driving cars or even litter, they're a massive problem. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here is how how do you view the modern world? Is the modern world not sustainable or can the modern world be a lot more sustainable than it already is? Well, of course, the, the central problem or one of the central problems that nobody wants to talk about because the potential solutions are too painful or at least politically risky to talk about is the population. <laughs> uh, you know, so, I mean, uh, humans could be as wasteful and as toxic and as destructive as they want. And if there are only 10,000 of them on the planet, you know, the planet could just shrug them off. Mm. Uh, but if they're going to be 10 billion of them on the planet, then they need to go. You know, I don't use the word sustainability anymore because it's meaningless. You know, it's, you can't measure it. You can say something is more sustainable than than it used to be, but you can't say it's sustainable. I mean, sustainable for how long? You know, mm -hmm. 10 years, 10 millennia, uh, sustainable with how many people on the planet? It's, it's a totally meaningless word. And it, it, it was actually invented in order to be meaningless. Uh, <laughs> it was invented as a dialogue tool to bring real estate developers and manufacturers together with the environmental community so it was invented to sound safe, you know, development. Oh, yeah, we all want development uh, and sustainability. People, you know, knew from the outset that you can't really measure that. So corporations and governments jumped into it with both feet because, wow, we can get all kinds of good publicity and we're not taking any risk because 20 years down the line, nobody's going to be able to say we failed because yeah. you can't measure it. So uh, that's why, you know, if humans want to be good for the planet, They've got to get beyond these sorts of politically correct uh, but meaningless activities, because obviously we've been talking sustainable development for 40 years and the climate's in a lot worse shape now than it was 40 years ago. Yeah. So um, we need to become restorative. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the great thing is that what we restore restores us. Yeah. And the places that we revitalize revitalize us. So we get the benefits out of it. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I recently became aware of, I'd say probably in the last six, seven months, is that in the start of IKEA, even though they started off as a sustainable, you know, good company, they would cut down trees that were hundreds of years old and say yeah. they planted new ones. But it's like those trees are hundreds of years old and you've cut them down in the space of 10 years. You're not going to you're not putting back exactly what you've taken away. If anything, you're putting back a smaller amount of that. And so I guess in more modern years now, they offer you to return their furniture and you can return it and that, that will, they will recycle it properly. So, you know, all, all what's inside of most of the IKEA furnishings, bar a couple, is, you know, MDF chipboard wood. So they kind of peel off that and, and recycle it. But then there's the underlying question of all the trees they've cut down previously and all the things that go to landfill rather than getting recycled. That surely there's a breaking point where there's you know, less trees than there is, you know, less trees ready to harvest than there are ready to, um, you know, less trees ready to harvest than there are to, to make stuff with. Th these problems are just kind of ongoing. And it's like, now, what, like, where do we go from here? Because it's like, I, I feel like we're seeing over the edge of the cliff, but nobody's slowing down type thing. 
Right. Well, there's nothing wrong with growing trees and using them. Uh, you know, it's a perfectly uh, sustainable, to use the word. The meaningless uh, word that we now have. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it, it's it, you, you can do it. I mean, so the word sustainable is fine. It's just sustainable development that's the problem. Right. And, uh, you know, so, you know, sustainable is a, is a real thing. Mm. Uh, you know, see, you can be economically sustainable, environmentally sustainable, you know. Uh, the, the key thing here is, are they cutting down things that are non-replaceable? So you can grow trees uh, till, till cows come home and not do any damage to the planet. But if you're cutting down old growth forests to make toilet paper or chairs, uh, you know, that's not sustainable. You, you can't replace an old growth forest because the environment the new forest is going to be growing up in is totally different from the environment that the old growth forest grew up in. So you're not going to get what you had. Yeah. And it's another thing with, you know, I'm sure everybody knows about the Amazon and how cutting down trees for this reason, that reason has made all the wildlife start dying down or, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're endangered and stuff like that. I feel like we're getting to a point now where there's a lot more kind of awareness around these things, but what do we do with awareness? Do you know, like, how do we kind of get to a point where awareness turns into action or awareness turns into, you know, in some cases, stopping certain things? Well, that's what I've been trying to do with my books and my talks and workshops is to tell the stories of places that have revitalized themselves, with, that have restored their natural resources, because that's the only thing that really affects people's behavior mm. is uh, they need models. Mm. You know, you show them, people or communities that have done what they should be doing and they can see it's possible and they can see those communities benefited from doing it, uh, they'll go out and do it themselves. Yeah. So you gave us the example of, is it Chattanooga, Tennessee? Right. Give us an example that's a bit more tropical, somewhere that's a, you know, you had the coral reefs as well. I know there's no coral reefs near me. So uh, you might be surprised. Really? You might be surprised. Yeah. There are actually deep water corals that are being destroyed every day in Britain by uh, deep sea trawlers. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But so what's another example of something that's been, you know, a, a story? Because I feel like, the, like you said, the way to connect with people, the way to make people understand and, and know how to do something is through a story or through an example that's been there. So Chattanooga, Tennessee, British coral reefs are getting destroyed. What, what's another example? Uh, well, you could look at uh, San Jose, Costa Rica where they had a, a problem where their uh, watershed was getting clear cut or not necessarily clear cut by corporations, but it was being deforested uh, by landowners, farmers who are expanding their farms, new, new, new people moving in to do farming. And it was threatening the water supply of San Jose, the capital city of Costa Rica. So they came up with a rather brilliant plan whereby they taxed the water. They added a tax to the local water in San Jose. And then they took that money they collected from the taxes and they paid the landowners in the watershed all around the city to restore their forest. And it became a nice feedback loop. And um, so now San Jose has got a much more secure water supply of high quality water. The forests around them are have been restored. And since uh, Costa Rica's major industry is tourism, then, uh, you know, that that helps the whole tourist industry because people used to fly into San Jose and so, and they'd look around from the plane as they were coming in. They say, this is the ecotourism uh, star of the planet that we were coming to see. You know, it made a very bad first impression. And now it's all a beautiful forest all around the city. Lovely. So following on from kind of water and all that kind of side of regeneration or, or uh, sorry what's the right word revitalization there's places like the seychelles which are struggling because of global warming rising tides and all that kind of stuff and from the research i've done you know over the years or just in in passing apparently what's happening to the world right now is like a natural process it's, it's like almost like when you put your dishwasher on it goes through a cycle where there's water then it heats up and the water disappears and then if you were to turn it on again there's water it's doing something heats up and all that water disappears but i feel like at the moment what's happening is we're we're losing land or we're having all these flash floods because of global warming do you have a way or 
any knowledge of how global warming could be reversed or slowed down or stopped? Well, the only way to slow it down or stop it is by sequestering uh, the uh, carbon, the excess carbon that's already in the atmosphere and by uh, slowing, greatly slowing down the rate of uh, new carbon and methane, uh, you know, carbon dioxide, uh, other greenhouse gases that are going into it. And there are, you know, big engineering companies that want to convince you that if governments gave them billions of dollars, they could invent machines that would efficiently take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, but in most cases, they fall into what I call stupid engineers tricks, uh, where the amount of energy and resources it takes to build these machines, the amount of energy it takes to run these machines, uh, it, you know, in return for the carbon they take out is just silly when you compare it to a tree, which is using solar energy to take carbon out of the atmosphere. In return, it turns that carbon into wood that you can turn into furniture uh, and at the same time provides habitat for wildlife and provides food maybe in the form of fruit and nuts and does that for decades. Uh, you know, how could any reasonable person look at those stupid machines and think they, in a million years they could ever uh, be as efficient and, uh, and mutually beneficial as a, as a tree. Yeah, there's a, there's a current movement as well around carbon neutrality and, you know, you can pay a company that will offset your carbon footprint and all this kind of stuff. And I think to myself, well, why is that something that you can do that you can make all this pollution but then pay someone else and they've reversed it or they've cancelled it out? And my main example is a lot of people kind of get kind of heated about this one, but people go, oh, if I get a Tesla, I'm saving the world, right? And it's like, you're still using electricity. The source of that electricity causes a lot of pollution. If anything, you're just you're taking a left instead of taking a right when you should have turned around and gone back the other way. Yeah, it's although the good thing about electric cars uh, or cars that are designed to run on hydrogen is that you're creating an infrastructure that can be switched over to a totally renewable source. Mm. So if you've got electric cars running all over the place, then all you have to do is switch the how you're generating the electricity. Mm. And you've already got the right form of cars in place. But if you switch over how you generate your electricity, but all your cars are still running on gasoline or diesel, then you've got a problem. Yeah. So at least it's setting the stage yeah. for for the kind of uh, energy revolution we need. And the same thing with hydrogen. If you get cars running around, running on, uh, going around running on uh, fuel cells, then uh, you can start manufacturing hydrogen from wind power and solar power. And uh, you know, again, the infrastructure is in place already. Yeah, You've I got a ready, a ready market for the energy you're producing. Yeah, I've seen a lot. Well, I, I guess growing up, because you know, renewable energy has been around for a long time, but growing up, you, you start to notice that, oh, you, when you drive down this long motorway stretch, there's a lot of wind turbines. And now on the, on the roofs of people's houses, there's solar panels. And to be honest, I don't understand why it's not becoming like a requirement. Because when the government wants to change something to do with taxes or to do with general law, for example, with COVID, it's instant. It happens straight away. And that's it. If you do it wrong, then you're you know going to prison or you're getting fined. But with solar panels and things like that, if everybody had a solar panel on the roof of their house, it would put less stress on, you know, the infrastructure system that, that provides electricity to houses. And if anything, it could get to a point where if you had enough solar panels all around, it would create smaller hubs of, you know, sustainable or reusable energy, if that makes sense. Because solar panels taking power from the sun, it's going in your house, you're using it for whatever you're using it for. And the sun comes out again and all this kind of stuff. And if you're using all that energy and you've got a little bit of food in the back of your garden or maybe if you're a meat eater you've got some chickens if you're into that type of thing it could be a, a much better place but what are the barriers to entry for this that's what i'm trying to get at here like why is it not no, and, more instant yeah and the other benefit of uh, having every house every commercial building every industrial building manufacturing its own energy through solar or wind or whatever is you're also building resilience that uh, when that next storm comes through, it doesn't have to just knock out a few power lines or knock out one central power facility in order to put everybody in the darkness. Uh, all of a sudden, now your power is distributed and uh, it's almost impossible to knock it out in a single storm. 
But um, primary barriers to entry uh, is <laughs> dirty politics. It's, you know, the, the companies that are, you know, the public utilities, the so-called public utilities that are almost always privately owned, uh, just have uh, a lot of power. In many cases, they, when the community tries to uh, do reverse metering, you know, whereby people get paid for the electric, paid by the utility for the power they're generating on their roofs, mm. the utility blocks it. And uh, so there's still plenty of places where it's illegal to sell your clean electricity back to a dirty utility. And that's just because of corruption. You know, these people are just paying politicians to block it. Yeah, because I've seen all of, all across different parts of Europe, there's a lot more greener kind of initiatives. There's a lot of people, you know, for example, in Germany, a lot of people ride bikes, Amsterdam as well, they ride a lot of bikes. There's a lot of this kind of, we kept, yes, we live in a modern city-based environment, but we travel around it or we use it in a way that's a lot more green, to, for a lack of a better word. And then there's other countries where, because of lack of infrastructure, people have come up with a lot more creative ways of living. So that I've seen recently that there's a person in, in Africa who's invented a light that is powered by seawater, which is amazing. And it's like, well, why doesn't that exist in more places? Or why is that not something that you could just actively buy? And I'm guessing it's because of all these institutions that are like, whoa, 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 why would we stop making money this way when you want to make it that way? Like, no way. Right. Yeah. And uh, and there, there are places that are requiring the uh, solar panels on roofs, you know, Germany, a uh, number of places, they say any new building has to have solar panels on the roofs. So, yeah, it's happening. It's just not happening fast enough. Right. And it's like you said, the, the only way to speed it up is through, you know, battling through politics. And as we know, that's a, a minefield of problems. So how do you kind of how do we, I say, how do we overcome this? But how how can the human race, because that's who we're talking about here, really, is everybody as a collective. How do we overcome this without, you know, without having to rely on the politicians on a, on a, on a base level? You're saying that we should all just take the cost of, of putting solar panels on our roofs and, and do that and then start our own gardens and, and that will be a better way forward or drive our cars less and that kind of thing. Well, it gets back to restorative development again, you know, by repurposing, renewing, reconnecting our natural built socioeconomic assets, all of a sudden, many opportunities to do these kinds of things uh, are revealed. You know, for instance, most communities have brownfields, you know, contaminated properties uh, that nobody can build on because nobody wants to buy the property, you know, you know, if they're going to be liable for cleaning up the pollution that's on it. So it just sits there as an ugly, unhealthy eyesore in the community. Uh, but now there's a major trend creating what, what we call bright fields, where people cover them with solar panels, because you don't need to decontaminate the soil first just to put solar panels on top of it. And now this uh, this uh, uh, property is producing power. It's a productive part of the community again. And at the same time, they can plant um, plants there that will do what's called phytoremediation, where by over years or decades, the plants will be pulling the pollution out of the soil. So eventually you get a clean piece of property as well. And in the, pieces, in the places where the pollution isn't very bad, uh, it's just a va big vacant property. They're actually planting it in such a way that they put sheep down there. Uh, so now they've got basically a whole new sheep uh, pasture. The sheep are keeping the, uh, the plant growth under control and they're benefiting from the shade provided by the photovoltaic panels and everybody's happy. Yeah. So it's just about building that. Because from what I'm gathering, it's about, it's about building a, a cycle or a circle of things that it's like, one thing happens, so another thing happens. But because those two things have happened, it feeds the first thing and it just keeps going round and round like that. Yeah, repurposing is the key to a lot of this stuff. It's like in India and all over the world, you know, there are tens of thousands of miles of water canals mm. that, you know, they're concrete lined ditches. And in many cases, they lose over half their water to evaporation before it arrives at wherever the water was supposed to get to. And over in uh, the state of... Uh, Gujarat, India, somebody had the bright idea of saying, well, look, we're, we're looking for places to put large expanses of solar panels. Why don't we put them on top of these canals, which will cut down on the evaporation by shading them. Mm. And we've got all this free real estate where the government already owns it. 
So we don't need to go through any kind of long process of getting permission to build them and or buying land. You know, and they've, they've got tens of thousands of acres of solar panels now covering their water canals, generating huge amounts of electricity and cut way down on water evaporation. There are opportunities like that just from repurposing spaces that are just staring people in the face. Yeah. So to jump back kind of to the beginning of our conversation, like basically all the way back to the beginning, I'm curious about what your nine to five job was and where the moment hit you that if I write this book, I'm going to be able to just leave this place. Well, I'd spent most of my life in businesses that or nonprofits that had something to do with the natural environment. And in the early 90s, I realized that I couldn't really be fully effective in helping the natural environment unless I learned more about the built environment, because the built environment is what's destroying the natural environment to a large extent. And I didn't want to go back to college. So I figured, well, I'll get myself a job where just doing my daily work will teach me about the built environment. I got a job as director of strategic initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute, and uh, which is a technical society of about 16,000 architects and engineers and construction product manufacturers, and uh, spent uh, five, almost six years there um, helping revitalize that organization, which was in pretty bad shape when I, when I joined it. And in the process, learning all about the construction industry and infrastructure and buildings and learning everything I needed to learn and getting paid to do it, uh, which I recommend as a, as a, for those of you who are looking for uh, a new path, a new career path, uh, and you're considering going back to school, you know, before you uh, make that commitment to going back to school, see if you can't find a job that'll pay you to learn what you want to learn. Uh, Cause they're, they're out there. So Having been self-employed before, I figured I could maybe last five years or so in a nine-to-five job before I went crazy. So I needed an exit strategy. And like I started to say earlier, I figured, well, if I'm going to become self-employed again, I really need a platform to stand on. Um, and uh, you know, having a published book, especially back in those days, which was before self-publishing became a huge thing, back when you had to go through real publishers who, you know, really uh, evaluated uh, your work. Um, I figured uh, if I had a book, then everybody would think I knew what I was talking about. So I wrote the, the restoration economy and my only qualification for writing that book was the fact that I wrote it because I knew absolutely nothing about the subject matter prior to that. Yeah. Wow. So when you were writing it, you were obviously learning as you were writing, which is like, like you said, it's like a documentation process. You were learning about the stories and all that kind of stuff. I guess because we've actually had another, well, two other people on that have written books and have them published through proper authors. But what was your uh, authors through through proper publishers? What was your experience like of working with a publisher back in the 90s? How did you find a publisher? How many did you have to go through? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, back in those days, you know, the, the normal path was, you know, you, you write a book proposal which is kind of like a business plan for your book. And then you shop it around to literary agents. And so you have to sell them on the book first. And then once the literary agent has taken on your book, they have to sell it to publishers. So it's a long, slow, painful process. Uh, like there's this wonderful novel out right now called Falling. It's just one of the best thrillers ever written. And uh, it was written by a flight attendant. It's about an air, air crash. And uh, she shopped it around to 41 literary agents until she finally got to number 42 who bought it. You know, it's a horrendous problem. It's now one of the New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> uh, but 41 agents turned it down. Yeah. So, yeah, I went through that process. I ended up with a really great publisher called Barrett Kohler out of uh, San Francisco, a very enlightened pu publisher that creates a real community between the publisher and the authors. Um, yeah, it's a very, very unique organization. So they were absolutely the perfect, ideal first publisher. And my second, you know, I mean, they were a dream to work with. My second book, I uh, went through a big name publisher, McGraw-Hill, you know, right, yeah, one, the <laughs> one of the largest on the planet. And that was a total nightmare. Um, I didn't have to use a literary agent from them because now I was a published author. So I had much more credibility and, uh, and they paid me a $25,000 advance 
from my book, which was nice. Um, but other than that, everything they could do wrong, they did do wrong. Uh, so the book was, you know, my experience with Barracola was they improved my book. My book, my the restoration economy was much better as a result of being published through them. Uh, Rewealth was <laughs> nowhere near as good as it could have been uh, if it had been published by Barrett Kohler. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, don't uh, don't assume that just because a company is huge that they know what they're doing. Yeah. And that's something that I've come to learn myself. Like if you're working with a smaller publisher, they have a more vested interest in your success because it benefits them more. And it benefits right. you more. But a big company is like, oh, yeah, bring them in. Oh, here, take some money. That would be good for you. Right. Oh, right. the book's done. Okay, cool. We'll put it out. Oh, no, your book didn't sell well. Or, you know, your product didn't sell well. Why? Like, because I needed your help. That's what I'm here for type thing. Don't get me started. Oh, you already got me started, but let me stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to start telling those stories. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, okay. So, because I, what I wanted to do is try to have a, a nice chronological order. So, you were working in the construction industry on, you know, revamping their side of things and making things more sustainable, fixing their processes. Then you released your first book. And from there, because back then when you had a book, it, it gave you a platform. Did you then go out on the speaking circuit? Cause I feel like that's what happens. You get a book going, then you go out on the speaking circuit. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's, that was exactly what I did. I went out on the speaking circuit and uh, continued to uh, try to convince people that I knew what I was talking about. And as a result, I'd get, uh, speak uh, consulting gigs and as a result of consulting gigs that gave me real experience in the real world i actually started developing real expertise plus by speaking at conferences and planning meetings and summits uh, all over the world uh, for every talk i gave i heard at least a dozen so that was an educational experience for me too i've probably heard more stories of successes and failures in community revitalization and natural resources restoration and climate resilience than anybody else on the planet. Because I've spent 20 years, that that's how I spent my life. And for 20 years, I was at conferences giving talks and listening to everybody else's talks, uh, which is what enabled me to write my most recent book, Reconomics, that just came out last year at Reconomics.com. And uh, you know that basically distills everything I've learned from all those thousands of stories I've heard over the last 20 years into a very concise formula for successful community revitalization, nature restoration, and climate resilience. Yeah, because I feel like that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is when you become an expert in something like yourself, it's not that I spent a lot of time looking at facts and figures and numbers. It's actually, I've spoken to or heard hundreds or thousands of people that are interested in this topic talk about it or say what they've got to say and all i've done is maintain that information and organize it in a nice way for you yeah there's an old saying that says uh the uh best way to learn is to teach yeah most definitely because you, you get asked questions and when you don't know the answer you go find out for yourself and then you come back with the answer that's the yep. best way forward so what is it that you enjoy about what you do because i i tried to think of a nice way to put a title on what you do and i just struggled so <laughs> what is it that you enjoy about blank job that you have technically well just the fact that as a result of what i'm putting out there people are out there improving the world i don't really improve the world myself you know i, I you know i've had a few direct experiences you know getting involved in nature restoration projects and doing community revitalization work, but I don't have the patience for that. Uh, you know, that's revitalizing a community is, uh, is, a, is a tough, dirty job. <laughs> you know, the, all the politics and, you know, uh, having to deal with uh, all kinds of people who just like to get in the way of progress. Uh, I don't have that kind of patience. So I'd rather just talk about it and yeah. talk about what other people are doing who are really doing this work. But the fact is, out of sharing these stories and sharing these lessons, people are doing a better job of improving the process of improving places. And as a result, you know, rivers are getting cleaner. Uh, you know, the, the brownfields are getting cleaned up. Communities are coming back to life. Uh, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I've been doing this over 20 years full time. And the great thing is you can't do too much of this. There are so many things in the world that are good, but only good in moderation. Mm. Uh, but you can't do too much restorative development. I've, I've never been to a community where people said, oh, my God, we've got to slow down this river restoration project 
because our water is getting way too clean and we got far too many fish in it now. Or, oh my God, we got to slow down this brownfields cleanup and redevelopment pro uh, process because we're running out of contaminated properties. Or, oh my God, we got to slow down this community revitalization program. Our quality of life and our incomes are getting way too high now. You know, I don't hear complaints like oh, that. Oh, stop. We're making too much money. Whoa, whoa. That type of thing. Yeah. So, Storm, I did want to ask you because I, I was thinking about it when I first saw it in the research I was doing about you. What is an invasive species apart from the human race? We've already established that. So let's move on from no, there. We're, we're not an invasive species. Oh, we're a destructive, uh, we're a destructive species, but uh, we're, we're native. Yeah. You know, we, we evolved here. Um, you know, an invasive species is just a species that has been introduced where it doesn't belong. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, there are hundreds of mollusk species, you know, shellfish and crabs. Uh, crustaceans that uh, have hitched rides in the bilge water of freighters and now have been introduced to bodies of water all over the planet where they don't belong. And they're doing incredible amounts of damage, eating the native species, plugging up the uh, sewer and drinking water pipes. Uh, you know, just it was recently estimated that invasive species have cost Great Britain alone $5 billion. Right. So it's just uh, it's a massive project, and sometimes it's done purposely. You know, some numbnuts in uh, the so south uh, of the U.S. Uh, decided that a species of plant, uh, um, uh, uh, no, blanking on the name now, um, kudzu, uh, that grew grew like crazy over in Southeast Asia, would do a good job of greening up places that had been degraded and were all brown, uh, you know, old farms and things like that. So he brought it into the South and now the kudzu just took over the American South. Everywhere you go, it's covered in kudzu, which has virtually no value whatsoever, unless you were to harvest it and turn it into biofuel. Yeah. Um, so, and in, uh, you know, Australia, uh, some guy uh, decided that uh, there were these beetles eating the uh, roots of the sugar cane down there. So he brought in a, uh, what they call cane toads, uh, a, a large uh, toxic uh, species of toad that doesn't belong there. And the cane toads ended up killing billions of wildlife all over the country uh, because number one, they're, they're toxic to eat. So if a snake or a hawk or whatever kills it and eats it, they die of the poison. And uh, the toad itself is so large that it goes around eating birds and snakes and frogs and <laughs> lizards and, you know, whatever, and anything it can fit down its mouth. And, uh, and the, the, the crucial point here is that they don't even eat the beetle grubs that were eating the, uh, the sugar cane. So it caused so more this, damage than it fixed. Yeah, this massive damage was done uh, just because people were playing God. Yeah. And so that's kind of something that we have to kind of keep, not keep an eye on, but, you know, do less of is, is play God and just let the world be how it is. Because I, I personally, every time I've been to the zoo, even as a child, maybe the first time I was excited, I was like, oh, wow, look, lions and tigers. And then when I got there the next time, I was like, wait, polar bears don't belong here. Lions mm -hmm. don't belong here. You know, zebras don't belong here. What the, what the hell is going on here? And right. it's, it's things like that, that we as humans take for granted, or we as humans kind of idolize is kind of, the main problem with what what's going on here it's like well who was the first person to go you know what yeah that line there put it in a cage we'll ship it back to england with us and then oh right. yeah make sure you get a man and a woman and we'll breed them up and we'll make sure that we can have a whole enclosure full of them even yeah, though this it's just the it's an entertainment industry yeah yeah but you know another good example of invasive species is down in the caribbean of uh, you know people didn't uh you know, due to superstitions, you know, they didn't like the snakes that were there. Mm. And these weren't even venomous snakes. Mm. They're totally harmless snakes uh, throughout the Caribbean. And uh, they didn't want to see them there. So they brought in uh, mongoose from India, uh, which are famous for killing snakes. And they wiped out all the snakes. Then all of a sudden, all these settlers lost their crops because without the snakes, the crops got overrun by rats and mice. Oh, so, so they did. There's they destroyed their own economy. Yeah, there's a natural balance that kind of you're trying to bring back into everyone's day-to-day -day life, which is a fantastic mission to have because I feel like at the moment everybody's focused on, oh, tech this, tech that, <laughs> let's build 
this and build that and digital this and, and whatever else. And you're like, actually, let's go back to basics here. If we can do this, it actually makes things 10 times better and it makes our lives last, well, not lifestyle-wise, but you know the sustainability or rejuvenation of our country and world 10 times longer. Yep. Although tech is helping too. You know, yeah. There are people who are coming up with forest restoration apps and all kinds of invasive species re removal apps for their phone. And there, there are people who are actually reforesting vast areas using drones now. Yeah. Reseeding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yep. for, for you, what does the future look like? Considering Storm that, you know, me and you, unfortunately, at least not yet, we're both not going to live forever. But with the work you're doing and the things that now me and the listeners will be looking into and probably taking part in what will the future look like uh, it really depends on where you are uh, if you're living in the seychelles the future looks pretty bleak uh you know that barring a, a miracle uh, the seychelles probably won't exist at the end of the century so uh you know and there are a lot of some of the world's most beautiful places that quite literally are going to disappear uh if you're on higher ground then you know you, you might get wiped out by wildfires or, or floods or, or, you know, storms or whatever, but uh, it's definitely going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. So what is the kind of picture of the, of the potential better side then? Well, there are two things. Like I was talking about before, all of these uh, regenerative activities also build resilience. Uh, the, same, the same thing you use to regenerate a community's economy and quality of life, which is repurposing, renewing, and reconnecting your natural and built and socioeconomic assets, those are exactly the same things, the same actions you do use in order to build its resilience. Mm. So if you focus on the regeneration of all these natural built and socioeconomic assets, then you're not only reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you're sequestering huge amounts of greenhouse gas, and at the same time, building resilience so that if all this activity doesn't stop the climate crisis from getting worse, you'll at least be more resilient and more able to deal with the storms and the floods and the wildfires and everything else that goes with it. The primary thing I want to get out to people is that, you know, you, you can be a, a major part of the solution here. You know, you go to Reconomics.org, you can actually learn how to do this sort of work for a living. Here's how to find Storm. If you go to stormcunningham.com, which is my public speaking site, it's got links on there to all of the other things I'm involved with. For instance, I publish Revitalization. It's a journal. It's got over 8,500 articles all about this kind of stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, it comes out twice a month. So that's at revitalization.org. So, But all my books, organizations, publications, all that kind of stuff, uh, you can find at stormcunningham.com. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend. 